The implications of LA City Council after racist comments were leaked. So I think we're seeing a, a unified response to these divisive comments. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The latest on a fast-spreading respiratory virus infecting students. I suspect a lot of these kids were tested when in the past they may not have been tested. So I think we maybe uncovered this a little bit easier than we would have in the past. And we break down the District 49 race and insights on Edgar Allan Poe's work. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hey, 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 this is Parker Edison, host of the Parker Edison Project on KPBS. The cool thing about joining KPBS is you make one simple donation, and that money ripples into supporting everything else you see and hear on KPBS, including podcasts like this one you're listening to right now, making a place for fresh voices and perspectives to be heard. And that's music to my ears. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click that blue Give Now button, and donate what you can, all right? Thanks. The fallout continues in Los Angeles City Council after racist recordings were leaked earlier this month. Yesterday, council members Gil Cedillo and Kevin DeLeon were stripped of their committee positions as protests urging them to step down continue. That follows the resignation of the now former Los Angeles City Council President Nuri Martinez and Los Angeles County Federation of Labor President Ron Herrera in the wake of the scandal. The comments captured in a recording were revealed first by the L.A. Times on October 9th. They detailed racist remarks about a white council member's young black son, about Oaxacan people, a mainly indigenous region in southern Mexico, as well as other minority groups. And the conversation where these comments were made was about redistricting, leading to a new question about the fairness of the process. I'm joined now by Thad Kauser, political science professor at UC San Diego. Thad, welcome back to Midday Edition. Well, thanks for having me, Jade, but I'm sad to be here. This is a painful moment in California political history. Indeed it is. First, let's talk about this leaked audio recording. What was said in it and by whom? Well, there were things said, uh, and, and many, most people have heard it. There are a lot of things that can't be repeated on, <laughs> frankly, on a, on a family radio show. But basically, uh, we saw a racist attack on on the son, two-year-old son of, of another council member. We saw the revelation of old racial tropes. Uh, and we saw attacks that, that were really colorist on the Oaxacan community, as as you said, a, a mainly indigenous community. And most of the, the worst things were said by Nuri Martinez, but Kevin DeLeon, Gil Cedillo, Ron Herrera, the other people uh, taking part in that conversation, all of them said ugly, terrible things, didn't intercede, all have apologized, but that hasn't stemmed the calls uh, for, for all of them to exit the political stage. Mm -hmm. and, and once the recording was released, as you mentioned, there was an immediate uproar. But then Council President Nuri Martinez initially tried to survive the scandal, didn't she? She did. And I think we've seen other political leaders survive some scandals like this before. So, so most famously, 
Virginia Governor Ralph Northam, who was was seen in a KKK costume at, at at a party right earlier in his life, he survived that scandal and and went on to to lead as governor of Virginia, which is something almost unfathomable in many ways. And so I think the initial thought and 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 the remaining thought by Kevin DeLeon and Gil Cedillo were the two members of the LA City Council who were stripped of their positions. According to the to the current acting president, they would have no credibility if they were to remain on the council, but they still have not yet resigned their seats. What has been the response of Black leaders in Los Angeles to the recording and and ensuing scandal? Well, I think we've seen a contrast between a set of comments that were deeply divisive, that that revealed divisions uh, between the Black and Latino communities in Los Angeles and, and within the Latino community. All of these comments were incredibly divisive, but we've seen a unified response. So this has not been something where only Black leaders have castigated the people who made these comments. Latino leaders, uh, both elected officials and the main community leaders in the Latino community in Los Angeles, came together to call for their resignation. Labor leaders called on Ron Herrera to resign, and, and he did. Democrats, uh, these all of these people were Democrats who made these comments. Democrats themselves, including all the way up to President Biden, have called on these Democrats to resign. So I think we're seeing a, a unified response to these divisive comments. And, you know, as you mentioned, yeah, council members Gil Cedillo and Kevin DeLeon remain on the council as of now, but calls for them to resign show no sign of slowing down. No, the, you've, basically you've seen every in-person city council meeting was shut down with protesters. There are protesters outside of, of Kevin DeLeon's residence. There are going to be calls that the council will meet by Zoom this week because one of the members tested positive for, for COVID-19. But it's hard to picture any of either of them carrying on. Gil Cedillo just has a couple months left in his term. He's he's due to, to leave office. But Kevin DeLeon, who was the most important Democratic legislative leader in the state as Senate President Pro Tem, who challenged and, and did well against sitting incumbent Dianne Feinstein, someone who was thought uh, to have a very strong political future, he still has not let go of of those ambitions and his possible ideas for for future uh, if he can survive this. Here's what acting council president Mitchell Farrell had to say about them yesterday. The only recourse is resignation or recall because I do not see the remaining two members who haven't resigned coming back to council with any level of credibility whatsoever. So if they continue to resist calls to step down, would you expect a recall effort to remove them? I think we could see that, right? We saw actually a nearly successful but ultimately failed recall effort against Mike Bonin, who is the the council member who was the, he and his family were the target of many of these racist remarks. So that is an option that voters have in California. You could see them exercising that option. But I think by the time we get too far into this, both members will resign. That will likely trigger a, a special election uh, for one of them. And, and, and that will lead to changes not only in the, in the composition of the city council, but really the very structure of the city council and how its redistricting is governed. All of those uh, will be rethought, I think, fundamentally after this terrible scandal. And do you expect Kevin DeLeon to be able to survive this? I don't think his long-term political future and statewide political aspirations, which which were very bright, right? This is a a very important leader, someone who had who had come from humble beginnings, uh, who had gotten to the to the top of state politics as 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 the first uh, Latino leader of the Senate in over a hundred years. He, his those ambitions, I, I think, are gone. 
will he, I think his hope now is that he could survive in his in this district, uh, which where he represents about a quarter million people, that he may be able to rebuild uh, those connections and rebuild that trust. But, but that remains to be seen. You know, the conversation where these comments were made were on the topic of redistricting. Tell me about the implications there and how might the redistricting process change for Los Angeles in the wake of these disturbing recordings? Yeah, I think this shows yet again that the, the redistricting brings out the, the 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 ugliest in every politician, right? It it, it involves their direct self interest of of drawing districts that that lead to their own political survival and, and favor their alliances, and the dis in Los Angeles in the city council, there's a redistricting commission, but it's not an independent one. It's still very much under the control of the members of of the city council, and that leads to this this question of self interest. I think it's and very likely that we'll see a reform, a charter reform to the Los Angeles Charter that creates a truly independent redistricting commission, much like the one that we have for the San Diego City Council, for San Diego County Supervisors now, and for the state of California over the past two decades. That model, I think, is one we'll see very soon in Los Angeles. You know, the LA City Council said it may elect a new president in a session today. Do we have any idea who that may be? Yeah, the leading candidate right now seems to be Curran Price, who is a Black city council member who represents a district with mostly Latino residents. So he's a proven bridge builder between these two communities, and he looks like the front runner uh, if the, the city council wants to reorganize itself now. But remember, it's going to have it's about to elect new members for at least a third of its seats. And so this could all be in flux again come December. In your mind, how do you think this will change politics in Los Angeles? Well, I think this will increase calls for reform of the city council in many ways. I think nationally, this has been such a major news story because I think in some people's mind, right, for Fox viewers nationwide, this is seen as uh, the revelation of, of the hypocrisy of California liberals, right? And I think what we've seen in the last week the response by people in every community, every racial and ethnic community that, that makes up the, the broad coalition, the Democratic Party in California, have all been unified in attacking this and in, in calling it out and standing up against their, their own members for doing it. I think that may lead to, to the resurrection of, of some of these coalitions. And I think what you see is a Democratic Party sort of searching for its soul right now in California. I've been speaking with Thad Kauser, Professor of Political Science at UC San Diego. Thad, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Health officials have been predicting a bad flu season, and San Diego saw a troubling sign of it last week. 40% of the student body at Patrick Henry High School was out sick at the end of last week, and a flu outbreak is suspected. Equally troubling is the number of children hospitalized in San Diego with the respiratory virus RSV. Doctors say more than 250 kids have come down with this version of the common cold that can lead to shortness of breath, and in some cases, viral pneumonia in very young children. Joining me is Dr. Mark Sawyer, Infectious Disease Specialist at Ready Children's Hospital and UC San Diego. And Dr. Sawyer, welcome to the program. It's great to be with you, Maureen. Are doctors sure that these two problems, the outbreak among high school students and RSV in children, have nothing to do with COVID-19? Well, it would be unusual there for there to be a direct link, but I suspect 
there really is a link. That is, we're tuned in so much now to respiratory illness that I suspect a lot of these kids were tested when in the past they may not have been tested. So I think we maybe uncovered this a little bit easier than we would have in the past. Why have there been predictions about a bad flu season? Well, you have to be careful with predictions of the flu season. It's sort of like predictions of the stock market or the economy. They're they're wrong half the time. But the primary reason is that the Southern Hemisphere, which if you keep in mind, their winter is the opposite of ours. So they've just been through the end of their flu season. And they had a many countries in the Southern Hemisphere had a particularly bad season. So That's one reason. And the second is that we've already started to see more cases than we normally do in October this year. So those two things together have people concerned that we're going to see a a really big season. What do you know about the suspected flu outbreak at Patrick Henry High School? Well, there was a notice to physicians last week about the increase in in the two viruses you've already mentioned, influenza and RSV in San Diego in general. And they specifically mentioned that there was this outbreak happening at Patrick Henry, which they, at least many of the cases were being attributed to to influenza. Now, 40% of the student population calling out sick. How unprecedented is that? That's quite unusual, for sure. Again, some of it may be due to increased sensitivity that COVID has has given us, with parents being more concerned about sending kids to, to school when they're sick, particularly if they didn't know what they had, whether they had COVID or influenza. Uh, but that's that's a lot. And so it, it sort of adds to the general concern that we may be seeing uh, not only more cases, but more severe cases. And is there anything to the idea that the lockdowns that we've seen in the past two years perhaps have made us all a little bit more susceptible to other kinds of viruses like the flu? Well, it is true that that many people get infected every year with influenza and RSV. And each time you get infected, it it protects you for a little while. But I, I really think that's unlikely to be the major explanation this year because our influenza vaccination rates continued to be pretty good through COVID. And that's a major way that we limit the uh, impact of influenza every year. What is RSV and how does it differ from the common cold? RSV is a respiratory virus. It, it affects primarily the elderly and young babies the most. Those are the people who end up in the hospital. It's a very common infection. And this is no surprise to those of us in infectious disease to see surging RSV in the fall and the winter. We actually give a special medication to young babies who are at very high risk from this virus uh, every year. So This is sort of normal business, although a little bit early for RSV as well as it is for influenza. How can people tell the difference between RSV and just getting a cold? There's no way to tell the difference. You can't even tell the difference between COVID and RSV and influenza without a test. So that's all the more reason for people to to get tested when they get sick and stay at home for sure if they are sick particularly if they have COVID, but really these other things as well. Is there any vaccine or or even specific treatment for RSV? Well, I mentioned the, the, quote, medication we give babies. It's actually a, a monoclonal antibody similar to the ones that we have for COVID, which you can give ahead of time to prevent young babies from getting really sick with this. So we give it to babies who have underlying heart and lung disease or immune system problems. 
It's not something that's given routinely to everybody. There is an RSV vaccine on the way. It's being tested right now, both in in elderly adults and in young babies. So I'm hopeful that in the next year or so, we may actually have a vaccine to, to prevent that infection specifically. And is there anything about the number of uh, RSV patients who've been hospitalized at Brady Children's Hospital that is concerning to you? Well, only that it's early. Uh, I mean, we obviously don't want anybody in the hospital, but we're quite used to surges in hospitalizations every winter. That That's part of what makes the hospital and doctor's offices busy every winter is all of the respiratory viruses that circulate. But RSV is often the, the leading virus that we deal with every winter. Now, there have also been predictions of an increase in COVID-19 infections this winter. And yesterday, Governor Newsom says California's COVID-19 state of emergency will end in February. Do you think that's a good idea? Well, I, you know, time will tell. There are certain public health officials are certainly predicting a surge in the winter, as we've seen the last two winters with COVID, as people get together more inside, It's and weather conditions seem to promote transmission of infection. Whether it will be a big surge or a little surge, I, I will have to see. It, it could, depending on when it happens, obviously, if we're in the middle of that surge in February, that would be too early to end the restrictions that are related to that uh, state of emergency. Have you been disappointed in the rather low number of children who've been given the COVID vaccine? Yes, a little bit. I think we've become a little complacent about COVID since we've come to know it so well and things have settled down now. But I do want to remind parents that young children get severe COVID just like adults do. Fortunately, not nearly as often, but we still are seeing kids hospitalized with COVID and that can be largely prevented through the vaccine. We know a lot about this vaccine and its safety now, so there's no longer a reason to be concerned about the safety of the vaccine and and uncertainty about that. We have given millions of doses of this vaccine to children and it's going very well. And I suppose you'd also like to see more children get their flu shots. Yes, we were doing pretty good with flu shots, particularly in young kids at, at certainly over 50%. And that, that held up in the last two years, uh, despite us being locked down and us not seeing much influenza. But as you, as you started with today, we're, influenza is back and getting your flu shot is the best way to prevent getting sick from it. And I got mine yesterday. Okay. I've been speaking with Dr. Mark Sawyer, who is an infectious disease specialist at Rady Children's Hospital and UC San Diego. Dr. Sawyer, as always, thank you so much. Thank you, Maureen. Hi, I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd. 
and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. The 49th Congressional District encompasses North County communities such as Oceanside, Vista, and Carlsbad, and reaches into Dana Point and San Juan Capistrano in southern Orange County. The district has been represented by Democrat Mike Levin since 2019. His challenger in the November election is Republican businessman Brian Marriott. Joining me is KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne. And Tanya, welcome. Thanks, Maureen. Happy to be here. Tell us more about these two candidates. Let's start with the challenger, Brian Marriott. Is he a political newcomer? Brian Marriott isn't new. This will be his third run at District 49 and his second time against Mike Levin. And although he hasn't won, he's definitely moved up in place and has gained a following. He's the former mayor of San Juan Capistrano and has a background in finance as a certified financial planner. He calls himself a conservative businessman who has spent his career helping families save money and invest in their future. It seems that after his financial planning business grew, he moved on to management of employees and client assets. And he told me that he's now dedicating himself to giving back. And in December 2020, Marriott launched a nonprofit, Plan It Kids, to provide free financial planning services to families. And before the incumbent Mike Levin was elected, he was involved in environmental law, wasn't he? That's right. Incumbent Mike Levin has focused much of his career on environmental and regulating energy compliance. He's big on developing cleaner energy and sustainable power. And some of that work has been seen in his support towards electric transportation, wastewater treatment facilities, and preventing future offshore drilling. What kind of legislation has Levin championed in Congress? Well, a lot of his work has gone towards climate action and cleaner energy. He's introduced legislation for the transition to zero emission vehicles and the development of renewable energy. He's also been involved in battling veteran homelessness and has gotten bills signed into law strengthening benefits and services for our veterans, which we know make up a large and important population in San Diego and North County. Another big issue here in the 49th District is the disposal of the nuclear waste at the retired San Onofre power plant. Here is Levin with his latest update on that. Just uh, recently, the Department of Energy announced that 16 million uh, would be spent over the next 18 months in trying to get somewhere between six and eight communities uh, interested in being a host, either for an interim storage site or potentially a permanent repository. What does Brian Marriott have to say about the nuclear waste stored at San Onofre? Well, Marriott isn't supportive of Levin's move to find a community willing to store the nuclear waste, whether it's a temporary or permanent storage site. Here are his thoughts. And guess what? Since 2008 until now, nobody has thrown up their hand and say, yes, we'll accept it. Marriott thinks the best solution for the nuclear waste storage is to find a mountain and bury it deep, as he said, which is something that has been studied in the past when officials were considering Yucca Mountain as a possible storage site. And what are Brian Marriott's top priorities in this race? When I spoke to Marriott, he said his top three priorities were reducing inflation, personal security for communities, and securing the border. A popular question we've seen this election is whether or not candidates believe Joe Biden legitimately won the 2020 election. And to this, Marriott has been very vague on his answer. Has he said anything at all about the legitimacy of Joe Biden's election? 
Well, his answers have been very vague on this, where he hasn't confirmed nor denied. And it kind of goes in hand with reproductive rights and access to abortion, which we've seen a lot of, a lot of lately. Marriott supported the Supreme Court decision and thinks states should decide on abortion access. And, you know, it's another question that he's declined to answer or kind of avoided. Mike Levin is a supporter of reproductive rights. What are his top issues? Levin's top three issues are protection of the environment, serving veterans and our military, and protecting democracy. And again, the protection of democracy ties into supporting reproductive rights for women, including access to abortion. The 49th District used to be reliably Republican when it was represented for years by Daryl Issa. In 2018, it flipped to the Democratic side by electing Mike Levin. Now there's speculation that it may flip back to the GOP corner. Why is that? This is a rematch for Marriott and Levin, and this time around, it could be very close, especially after the statewide redistricting. This district is made up by parts of Orange County that tend to lean more on the conservative side and part North San Diego County that have usually voted more democratically. But things could take a shift. We'll have to wait and see, right? Has there been any polling done to indicate who's ahead? I haven't seen any recent polling, but I know that the last election, Marriott lost by six points, which is, you know, a very small margin. And I have seen him gain more popularity. And just driving around in my neighborhood here in Oceanside, I'm seeing a lot of Marriott signs. So it it could very well be a very close election for them. Where can listeners find out more about this race? Listeners can find out about this race and many others on our website, on our voter hub. And something really cool this election is that we do have the information available in Spanish. So just stay tuned and we will keep you updated as we get closer to elections and on Election Day. And I've been speaking with KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne. Tanya, thanks. Thanks, Maureen. The future of electric cars has created an enormous demand for lithium, and Imperial County is rich in deposits. Companies are prepared to mine the metal, suspended in salty underground water. But who will reap the financial rewards? KPBS science and technology reporter Thomas Fudge has this second story in a two-part series. Maria Navafrolik is a 40-year employee of the Calipatria School District. She is also the mayor pro tem of Calipatria, and she tells me there is a lot that is missing from her town. Visit our communities and see for yourself how rural and how impoverished we are. We want to thrive like other municipalities, like other communities. The realities of high unemployment, lack of retail businesses, and few career opportunities are as stifling here as the triple-digit temperatures in the summer. Some, like Luis Olmedo, executive director of the Comité Civico del Valle, says distribution of what money there is has not been equitable. Anytime there's an opportunity, we've been exploited as a community. That was really a rallying point that says, hey, wait a minute. We're going to pull together because if we don't work together, every other interested party that is seeing a financial opportunity is going to tear us apart. And we're going to end up with nothing but extraction and no benefits in our own community. The extraction he's talking about is the future mining of heavy deposits of lithium, which is suspended in underground brine water. And this time, the wheels of politics have guaranteed that some money will remain in the Imperial Valley 
and hopefully benefit many of the people who need it. State Assembly member Eduardo Garcia, a Democrat who represents Imperial County, was behind a bill signed by Governor Newsom. It will levy an excise tax on every ton of lithium that is recovered in the valley, and every penny of tax revenue is staying in the valley. 80% will go to the county for purposes of reinvestment into the community. 30% of that 80 will be directed towards communities closest to the lithium recovery activities. The remaining 20% will go to Salton Sea Restoration. The County Board of Supervisors will have to decide what reinvestment initiatives deserve funding. Garcia says officials have raised the question at community meetings. If you live in the North End, there are issues related to water and sewer infrastructure. They're looking for investments that will lead to economic development opportunities. There's a town on the North End that doesn't have a grocery store. The excise tax that will be levied on lithium extractions will ultimately reach $800 a ton. Industry is not happy about it. David Spomer is the CEO of Energy Source Minerals. They are planning to build a billion-dollar expansion to their geothermal plant to begin mining lithium in 2025. When the governor's office indicated that they were going to support this industry, we were thankful. That's great. But the first thing that happened was they put a $800 a ton lithium tax on us. And I I was kind of shocked that that was how they were going to help this industry take off. But Spomer says they've come to terms with the tax, and Mayor Nava Froelich is very upbeat, calling the lithium industry a game-changer for the Valley. In a related development, San Diego State University received an $80 million check from the state to build a STEM research and education facility at its Imperial Valley campus in Brawley. San Diego State President Adela De La Torre spoke at a recent community forum in Brawley and offered this bright vision for the future. This is a moment in history and time where we really can transform the valley so that we can really create a vision that allows our students to stay in the valley, have opportunities in the valley, and become the leaders of the valley in so many different ways. Spomer with Energy Source says he welcomes the training offered by San Diego State and Imperial Valley College. He says it's important to recruit, train people who are from the valley because outsiders who move here typically don't last very long. Thomas Fudge, KPBS News. More than a year of closed classrooms and remote learning due to COVID-19 have taken a toll on student academic performance at San Diego Unified. The most recent state standardized test scores show sharp drops in math and English standards, erasing gains that were made in the five years leading up to the pandemic. San Diego Unified school officials say drops in student performance were expected and mirror lower achievement numbers nationwide. Now the effort is under way to help kids recapture those gains. Joining me is Jacob McWinney, education reporter with Voice of San Diego. And Jacob, welcome to the program. Hi, Maureen. Thanks for having me. There are a lot of numbers in this new data, but what are the most significant findings in this evaluation of student performance? 
Yeah, as you said, there are a lot of numbers, and I'm going to be throwing a lot at you at this interview. <laughs> so I'd say the most significant results are the large drops in the percentage of students meeting the state's English and math standards. Overall, the number of students meeting English standards at San Diego Unified dropped by around four percentage points, and the number of students meeting math standards dropped by about seven percentage points. And as you said, those drops in scores nearly cancel out all of the increases in scores over the last five years in English, and the drops in math scores more than cancel out those increases. What percentage of San Diego Unified students meet state standards now, and how does that compare to pre-pandemic numbers? Uh, during the pandemic, the state smarter balanced assessments, which are what these scores are, largely weren't done. Uh, so the last year that data is available is is for the 2018 to 2019 school year. And during that school year, 57% of students met the state's English standards and around 48.5% of students met the state's math standards. The latest results from the 2021 to 22 school year show around 53% of students met the state's English standards and around 41% met the state's math standards. And as you said at the top, these drops do mirror somewhat the drops that have occurred nationwide. And does the long-standing achievement gap for black and brown students continue in these new numbers? They do. Uh, and although we saw drops in scores across demographics, uh, in some demographics, these, these drops were even worse. So even before the pandemic, there was a wide achievement gap for black and brown students. Uh, in the 2018 to 2019 numbers, around 32% of Hispanic students and around 28% of black students met the state's math standards, compared to 73% of Asian students and around 69.5% of white students. In the latest results, however, around 24% of Hispanic students and nearly 19% of black students meet the math standards. So that's an over 9% drop for black students, so multiple points higher than the 7% drop overall. Uh, meanwhile, the drops seen for white and Asian students are, are more in line with that 7% number. There's slightly less variation in the drops in English scores, though Hispanic students saw around a one-point higher drop than other demographics. Are there any other data points that stand out to you as significant in this evaluation? Yeah, there, there are a couple interesting ones I'll point out. One interesting one was that the only student group that saw slight gains over the pandemic were, were students in special education. That's, that's pretty surprising, all things considered, and we're still trying to get to the bottom of why. Another surprising thing, given existing data trends, was that non-economically disadvantaged students actually saw a higher drop in scores than economically disadvantaged students. Uh, that's another thing that I'm going to be digging into. And the last data point I'd highlight is a little worrying, and it needs a little bit of an explanation. The assessment essentially breaks down student performance into four categories. There's the exceeds standards category, which is the highest, meets standards category, the nearly meets standards category, and the does not meet standards category. In the latest scores, we didn't see a sort of uniform shift downward we actually saw a sort of pooling at, at the bottom category. For example, math scores, the nearly METS category increased by a fraction of a percent, that's the kind of third lowest, uh, while the lowest category increased by just about seven points. That's pretty much the entirety of the drop that we saw. The pattern was similar in English scores, though slightly less pronounced. So students seem to be dropping not just to the category below, but potentially to, to the lowest category. Now, the state's largest school district, Los Angeles Unified, released their results last month. How did San Diego Unified's results compare with what L.A. schools saw? 
They did. So uh, student performance at San Diego Unified has historically, and, and also in the latest results, been higher than LA Unified's. But although Los Angeles Unified also saw drops that were similar in nature, drops at San Diego Unified were actually larger than those in LA, where San Diego saw 7 and uh, 4% drops in the percentage of students who met state math and English standards, respectively. Uh, LA saw drops of 5 and 2% in those categories. What are officials at San Diego Unified saying about the drop in scores? Yeah, the district feels these results give them a better sense of where students are at. You know, this is one of the first data points that we have to compare to pre-pandemic scores. And it also is important to note that this is just kind of a snapshot in time. And given that the significant disparities still exist in student performance, they they feel it highlights the need to focus on equity and, and whole child education, which basically means supporting students in in all facets of their life outside of the classroom, like potentially providing mental health and social emotional supports. Um, They've also said that it's important not to blame students, teachers, or staff, but to try to rally around and to support the community. And what are some ideas floating around about how schools can help students recover from this pandemic learning loss? That's uh, that's the question of the day. I spoke to Dan Goldhaber for my piece, Voice of San Diego. He's the director of the Center for Analysis of Longitudinal Data in Education Research. And so he's steeped in all of these numbers. And he said he thinks that uh, a real key to digging students out of what he called a pretty significant academic hole will be extending learning opportunities, whether that's through longer school days, Saturday school or summer school. He thinks that those extended opportunities are are really vital because he's skeptical that interventions that take place just during the class day are are, are enough. And is San Diego Unified offering longer school days or summer school that kind of extended academic opportunity? Yeah, the district has outlined a number of strategies it said it will employ to to help students recover from COVID-19 learning loss and, and expanded learning opportunities is one of those strategies. Um, I'll update you on the specifics of what that that looks like as I, as I start to learn. Other strategies they've listed are are prioritizing standards-based learning, which has actually been a bit of a of a controversial topic in the district. They're going to implement subject area supports and in, in subjects like math, science, and literacy, and they are planning on expanding early education programs. I've been speaking with Jacob McWinnie, education reporter with Voice of San Diego. Jacob, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me, Rory. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. Write Out Loud's Poe Fest provides audiences with a chance to meet Edgar Allan Poe, the master of such morbid 19th century works as The Raven and The Telltale Heart. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando took advantage of this opportunity to speak with Mr. Poe directly to get insights into his work. We're very fortunate today to actually have Mr. Edgar Allan Poe with us to discuss his work. So, Mr. Poe, what do you think has contributed to the legacy of your work? Without any doubt, morbidity, curiosity, the curiosity of morbid young minds. For young minds are indeed curious about 
the darker aspects of the human soul, the darker, more violent, more volatile areas of sanity. In one of my stories, The Premature Burial, I state, the lines which divide life from death are at best shadowy and vague. Who is to say where one ends and the other begins? I also contend that the lines which divide the boundaries between sanity and insanity are also shadowy and vague. It has been the case throughout history that humans grow fascinated, curious about madness, mental fragility. That said, I offer this bit of caution to young readers. Be cautious when you seek madness. You just may find it. And as a writer, what inspires you to write these particular kind of stories? What are you drawing on? Ah, where to begin? Well, I struggled throughout my lifetime. Many know that. Not many know the extent to which I struggled through my lifetime. My father disappeared before I was even a year old. My mother tragically died before I was three. I was separated from my siblings, raised by shrewd Virginia tobacco merchants. My foster parent, John Allen, was, well, not the warmest paternal figure. Everyone I loved, every woman I ever fell in love with, died in my lifetime, and I had to watch it happen. And it would seem that during my lifetime, for the most part, the world was just coldly indifferent to my poetry. I was more successful as an author than a poet in my lifetime. And I was more successful as an editor than either of the other two. I really made my living as an editor and critic more so than writing original works. It frustrated me. It angered me to no extent. Therefore, I fled from my anger into the world of fiction and gothic horror and gothic poetry and sadly substances as well. Therefore, I suppose it could be said that the rage I felt in my everyday life was channeled into my writing. And what do you see as your legacy? My legacy? The foray into the darkness of one's creative soul. Inspiration for generations after generations of young writers. As well as, perhaps, a resurgence into themes of Halloween, horror, and terror. The macabre that we experience within our own souls is perhaps not something that we should see as a challenge or a stumbling block, but more so as an element of our psyche that makes us stronger, provided that we channel our rage properly. Do you have a favorite work, or do you have a work that you feel revealed the most about you? In terms of the work which reflects the most upon my life, 
I encourage any novices in my work to explore William Wilson. It is my most autobiographical short story. And in terms of my poems, I must say Annabelle Lee ranks as my favorite of my poems. And would you like to leave us with a few lines from any of your poems or works? Well, of course. I will close this out with the beautiful final stanza of Annabelle Lee. For the moon never beams without bringing me dreams of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. And the stars never rise, but I see the bright eyes of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. And so all the night tide, I lie down by the side of my darling, my darling, my life and my bride. In her sepulcher, there by the sea. In her tomb, by the side of the sea. Okay, I know you didn't really think that was Edgar Allan Poe speaking to me from beyond the grave, but it was the 19th century author channeled through actor Travis Rhett Wilson, who's part of Write Out Loud's Poe Fest. Wilson will be performing The Raven and serving up an encounter with the tormented writer over the next two weekends. I asked Wilson how he first got introduced to Poe. My dad read The Raven to me when I was nine, and I was just fascinated by the language. I didn't understand any of it, so I wanted to learn more, and I went in, learned what some of the words meant, familiarized myself with a lot of his other works. I didn't really start digging into his backstory until college, and I found this dusty old biography called The Haunted Man, and I just read about him, and I thought, wow, this guy was a very angry, hateful man toward the end. How did he get this way? And I wanted to know more. And knowing that someday I wanted to play this guy. And here we are. Talk a little bit about the particular location where PoFest is going to be taking place because you're in a kind of Victorian mansion which seems to lend itself very much to his work. We will be performing for the second year at the Casa de Montezuma, and it's just a beautiful, gorgeous, gorgeous space, historic site, considered one of the most enchanted. It's not haunted. Don't call it haunted. Of course, when I'm there as Poe, in a manner of speaking, it'll be haunted. So, Because Poe's there. Poe's ghost invades, infiltrates. I just love the space. It's absolutely beautiful. The rooms that I perform in have this lovely ambiance of just a warm morbidity to them. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about PoeFest. Oh, no problem. That was actor and Poe enthusiast Travis Rhett Wilson speaking with arts reporter Beth Accomando. Write Out Loud's PoeFest continues through the next two weekends at Villa Montezuma Museum and highlights not just Poe, but also Mary Shelley, Shakespeare, and Robert Louis Stevenson. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.